Hi there, and welcome to my Fashion Stories Box podcast, a podcast about stories in fashion history. I am Catherine, and I am so glad to welcome you here. Let's discover together interesting facts about fashion and history and fashion history. When I was a kid, I was curious to see if there were some famous people having the same name as me. So I opened the dictionary, we didn't have internet at that time, and I went to the sea letter to discover other Catherines in history. And I found Catherine II of Russia, Catherine of Medici, Saint Catherine, and upon reading about their lives, I didn't become a great fan, to be honest. I was 11, 12 years old, maybe, and reading about women bearing the same name as me, who killed other people thirsty for power, though being queens, wasn't the kind of glamour I was expected at that age. It's just by growing up that I understood how influential as women they could have been. It's just history, the one with a capital H, which doesn't like women and tend to create them a bad reputation when they got the power. Then, when I started to study fashion history, the name of Catherine of Medici came back quite often. It piqued my curiosity and I decided to discover more about her. That is the reason why I chose to dedicate an episode of my Fashion Stories Box podcast to Catherine of Medici, a Renaissance fashion icon. Together, we will learn more about her life, how she, an Italian girl, became the Queen of France. We'll talk about the black legion surrounding her reputation, and in the same time, we will discover what was the fashion for women during the Renaissance period and the inputs of Catherine of Medici. And finally, we will see how she became a source of inspiration for modern day designers. Let's go! Catherine of Medici was the great-granddaughter of Lorenzo of Medici, nicknamed Lorenzo the Magnificent, who was a banker, a statesman, and the ruler of the Republic of Florence during the 15th century. He was such a powerful prince that it is said that he was the one who inspired Machiavello to write his book, The Prince. Her father, another Lorenzo of Medici, married her mother, mother, the French countess, Madeleine of La Tour d'Auvergne, as a part of an alliance French King Francis I did with the Pope Leon X against Maximilian I, the Holy Roman Emperor. When you study fashion history, you review also all your history classes from when you were a kid and you forgot about. To sum it up, it was a period of time during which the Kingdom of France was very interested in the Italian republics by fighting or making alliance with some of them while trying to impose itself against the other big players as Spain or England. To come back to little Catherine, she was born on April the 13th, 1519 in Florence and during the first months of her life, she lost and her father and her mother. What a way to start her life. So much that it was the start of her dark reputation and how she would bring bad luck to everybody around her. On the day of her birth, astrologists would have said that if she was going to live, 
huge disasters up to the complete disappearance to the house and place she would be married to would happen. This didn't prevent French King Francis I to ask for a hand to marry her son, the future Henry II. And on October the 28th, 1533, at the age of 14, Catherine of Medici and Henry, Duke of Orleans, future King of France, got married in Marseille. Young Henry, however, wasn't really interested in his young wife and preferred to spend his time with his mistresses, among which was the all-powerful Diane of Poitiers. Deeply in love with her husband, poor Catherine was left alone with the increasing pressure to birth a child and by being bullied by the court for not being of noble origins. She was nicknamed the Merkin's Daughters or the Banker's Daughter. And to compensate, she spent the majority of her time with her father-in-law, King Francis I, who enjoyed her erudition and who initiated her to the hearts of politics. Catherine, from her family origins, was an arts lover, and she would bring this passion for arts with her to the court of France. She would have several buildings and cathedrals restored or built in Paris and in the Loire Valley. She would collect artworks as tapestries, maps, rich fabrics, sculptures, paintings, and portraits, among others. She would also have launched an artistic patronage program, and thus contributing to the development of the Renaissance ideas in France. Something else she brought with her from Florence was her attraction to the occult and to the poisons. Catherine would consult astrologists on a regular basis to know about the destiny of her children, especially her sons. She would have been in contact with the famous medium of that time, Nostradamus, who would have prophesied the end of the Valois dynasty. She was also suspected to use poisons to get rid of rivals depending on her political agenda, as she was suspected of the death of Jeanne d'Albret, the mother of Henry of Navarre, future king of France under the name of Henry IV, to whom she would have offered a poisoned pair of gloves. And she was also suspected to have poisoned a brother-in-law, um, the first son of King Francis I. During the first 10 years of her marriage with Henry, she couldn't get pregnant, and she would have used quantities of remedies to finally birth a child. All these activities made her contemporaries believe that she was a witch and contributed to the dark legend surrounding her. However, she wasn't the heartless, bloody woman thirsty for power history wanted us to believe she was. Her life wasn't that easy trying to preserve the integrity of the Kingdom of France and the lineage of the Valois. Her sons weren't of the best health and would die one after the other with no descendants. After her husband, King Henry II, died, her first son, Francis II, was crowned King of France and married Mary, Queen of Scots. Catherine would stay in the shadows advising his son. And at the death of her first son, who left without heirs, her second son, Charles, became the new king of France, known as Charles IX, at the age of nine years. Catherine would become the regent queen, 
is sound being still underaged. The background situation in France wasn't at its best. The Huguenots, the Protestants, were getting more and more power, and frictions between them and the Catholics increased to lead to civil wars. It was the period of the wars of religion in the Kingdom of France between the Catholics and the Protestants. And Catherine, while trying to protect her children, had to deal with this situation to find a compromise between the two leagues. Quantities of edicts and proclamations would be done. Catherine would even marry her daughter, Margaret, better known as Margot, to Henry of Navarre, the son of her enemy, Jean Dalbret, a fervent Protestant, but to no avail, leading to the bloody night of the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, which lasted a week during which thousands of Huguenots have been slaughtered in Paris and in other cities in France. Ordered by King Charles IX, the responsibility of this massacre has always been attributed to his mother, Catherine of Medici, thus again contributing to a negative reputation through the through the ages. Charles IX would die at the age of 23 and would be replaced on the throne of France by his brother Henry, Duke of Anjou, who would reign as Henry III. It is said that Henry was Catherine's favorite son. He was already an adult when he assessed accessed to the throne, but he would ask his mother's assistant to rule the country. Henry didn't have a big interest in the ruling matters, and no child was born from his marriage, which led the last son of Catherine, Francis, another one, Duke d'Alençon, who almost married Queen Elizabeth I of England, all chances to access to the throne. Willing to speed this process, young Francis, whose birth name was in fact Hercule, decided to ally with the Protestants, but he died in June 1584 at the age of 29. Henry III died in August 1589, assassinated, leaving no heir to the crown of France. Her last surviving child was Marguerite. However, as per the Salic law enforced in the Kingdom of France, according to which only males could access the throne, Marguerite's husband, Henry of Navarre was proclaimed the new king on the condition he renounces to the Protestant religion and converts to Catholicism. The Valois line was dead. A new dynasty of kings of France would start with the coronation of Henry of Navarre of Bourbon, Henry IV, in February 1594, the House of Bourbon, which would last until Louis XVI. Catherine of Medici died in January 1589 at the age of 69, few months before the assassination of her last surviving son. She seemed to have been the victim of this malediction astrologist predicted the day of her birth, the person through which misfortune and death would happen. A prophecy surrounds her death. Found of astrology and divination, she would have been told that she would die near Saint Germain. In the last moment of her life, Catherine of Medici would avoid anything with the name of Saint Germain in it. She based her court in Blois, a city far from Saint Germain en Laye and Saint Germain d'Auxerre, places where she used to stay. 
In her final hours, she accepted to receive the last sacraments, and a chaplain she didn't know entered her room. She asked for his name, which was... Julian of Saint-Germain. One can't escape from its destiny. Now that we have a better understanding of Catherine of Medici's life, and before we look at her legacy in the fashion of her time at the court of France, let's have a look at what Renaissance fashion for women looked like. The Renaissance movement started in Italian arts and architecture to spread in other countries. Fashion and styles weren't an exception. During the 16th century, Italy was the center of fashion. And naturally, Catherine of Medici brought some innovations with her when she married the future King of France. How did Renaissance fashion look like? What were wearing women at that time? Let's look at it together. The lean and long women's silhouettes of the Middle Ages would give place to a more structured and restricted one. Volumes would be added, sleeves would be the center of all the attention, corsets would make an appearance, and shoes would have heels higher and higher. This is how, in a few sentences, we could describe the fashion of that time. We can really talk about power dressing during the Renaissance. Clothes were the sign of power, of status in the society. People from the upper class would show off through their clothes with embroideries and luxurious fabrics. They will compete with the aids of their heels, with the lengths of their dresses, with the volume of their sleeves. Everything had to scream power. Even the square-shouldered doublets, the jackets worn by men. If you look at portraits of that time, men's torso looked extraordinarily broad, as if they were incredibly muscular. This broadness was also reinforced by the thinness of the legs. As I like to tell my students, during the Renaissance time, legs were the new sexy for men. They would wear tight-fitting stockings to underline the forms of their legs. And as their legs seemed almost naked with no volume, the volume put at the torso was perceived even more strongly. The belief was that if I have a big torso... I am a powerful man, as I can impose myself visually and physically. For women, the new sexy wasn't the legs. The new sexy was the waist. The thinner, the better. All the silhouettes of the Renaissance for women focus on the waist. The waist would be compressed into corsets to underline its thinness. The waist would be accentuated through the volume of the skirts and the spread of the understructured called fartingales. The waist would be underlined with the sleeves and their various forms. And finally, the waist would be highlighted with the shoppings, these very high platform shoes, which would give a certain movement to the body when women would walk. Let's look a bit more into details to the outfits women would wear. The first item they would wear was a chemise, a kind of long tunic which could also act as an underwear. Then they would wear the petticoat, a sort of underskirt, also acting as an underwear. Then you would find the fartingale. It was an underskirt equipped with hoops, which would give to the dress its desired shape. Two types of fartingales existed. The Spanish fartingale with a conical shape and the French fartingale with its more square shape framing the hips. 
This might be the first example in fashion history of artificially changing the female body to give it a more desirable silhouette. Then you would have the bodice for the top of the body with its corset and the sleeves. Sleeves were of a higher importance during the Renaissance time. They could be directly assumed to the bodice of the dress or detachable. Sleeves could be richly decorated, they could have different forms, be padded at different levels, be more or less voluminous. They were offered as wedding presents by the groom to his bride, they could be rented for special occasions, they could be passed along from generation to generation, from mothers to daughters, from aunts to nieces. Sleeves were a serious business at that time. Necklines were usually square, leaving the skin bared. This part could also be covered up with a piece of fabric called a partlet, pinned to the bodice of the dress. This item could be transparent or opaque and give the impression of a high-necked dress. And ruffs could also be attached to this partlet. The fabrics used to create these outfits were very luxurious, and even more if you were part of the royal family. You would have lace, velvet, silk, fur, embellishment with embroideries, gold threads, stones, pearls. As accessories, Renaissance women would have a fan, gloves, and a pomander, a sort of small bag looking like a ball in which they would put perfume or sometimes makeup. They would wear high platform shoes, which combined with the corset and the farthingale restricted their movements, and sometimes they couldn't walk alone and needed assistance for that, not to mention getting dressed. I'm not sure we can talk about power dressing for Renaissance fashion for women. When clothes are that restrictive that they prevent any movement, it's difficult to notice the empowerment here. It's more about making women dependent than freeing them. On the other hand, they were also dressing to impress. And this was the motto of Queen Elizabeth I of England, a contemporary of Catherine of Medici, and another fashion icon of that time. As a ruling woman, she needed to have clothes and accessories which, was, which would translate her status, her position, her appearance, the quality of items she would wear, the richness of the fabrics, of the accessories, the delicacy of them was an indirect testimony of the richness of her country. If the queen looks well and healthy, then it means that the country is rich and healthy too. Kings and queens were a personification of their countries and of their economic state. This is one of the reasons why they had to wear the best of the best. An accessorize which is quite emblematic of the Renaissance fashion is the ruff. Ruff is a color accessory which frames the face, made of light fabrics as light linen, sometimes embellished with embroideries, with different sizes and forms, which could require also a wide understructure. The ruff was worn by both men and women. The funny story about this accessory is that it started more as a piece to protect the cloth from being stained by food when people were eating. A bit like a bib we attach to babies' necks. 
At that time, the food people were eating were very oily and greasy. Moreover, the majority of people would eat with their fingers. The forks would be introduced a bit later from Italy. So the first ruff was more a production item than a fashion one. And then it's been noticed that by wearing this item, one needed to keep their head straight, a posture conveying dignity and proudness, a posture people from the Renaissance era would love and adopt. Women would also wear jewelries, different kind of rings, earrings, necklaces, bracelets made of precious materials as gold and silver, embellished with stones and pearls. And when it comes to Hair style and accessories, women had the choice between different types of hats and hair compositions. Only unmarried women could have their hair loose. Married women would braid their hairs into buns, decorating them with hairpins, with pearls, with ribbons. But the majority of them would wear hats, which would cover their hairs. The most popular type of hats worn during the Renaissance was called the French hood or its variant, the gable cap. The French hood is composed of two rectangles assembled together to give a T-form. The two shorter parts would frame the face and the longer one would hang in the back. This French hood could be more or less decorated, more or less rigid, more or less voluminous, and hide it or not the totality of the hairs. Renaissance fashion was very opulent and a display of power and wealth. However, this opulence wasn't accessible to everybody. In order to limit the access to the most luxurious fabrics and materials, sumptuary laws were adopted. These laws restrained luxury to the aristocracy, to the noble families. Wealthy Americans' families didn't have access to all this luxury as they weren't royals or aristocrats. You couldn't dress above your status during the Renaissance time, and your status was defined by the quantity of blue blood in your veins. What about Catherine of Medici and her influence on the fashion of her time? Catherine of Medici didn't have the physical appeal or the charisma of the other women at the French court, among which you could find Diane de Poitiers mistress of her husband. She was said to be small and a bit chubby, but she was smart. To compensate her unattractiveness, she would use dress to impose herself. In the first years of of her wedding, portraits would depict her wearing magnificent and colorful dresses and accessories. Ordering dresses and jewelry from the best and most luxurious materials composed the majority of her expenses, and her husband, though unfaithful, would keep closed eyes in front of the amount of money she would spend. It's only after the death of her husband that Catherine of Medici would completely change her style, but not the amounts of her fashion expenses. As a sign of grief after the loss of her husband, that she dearly loved, Catherine would wear only black until her death, thus putting black as the official color of mourning. But black was also the color of power, a color difficult to create and to maintain, a color which would set her apart from the others. 
Catherine of Medici brought many innovations in the French court fashion from Italy. The first introduction she made was at her wedding to the future king, Henry II. An it item back in Italy, the shoppings weren't a thing yet in France. For her wedding, she wore a pair of shoppings high platform shoes whose heels could measure from 30 to 60 centimeters. These shoppings made her look higher and increased her visibility and thus a status at the court of France. After her wedding, women of the court would also adopt these shoes. Highly uncomfortable and unpracticable, assistance was needed to walk. Catherine of Medici would wear these shoppings throughout her life and would walk by leaning on the heads of two dwarfs. You are the Queen of France or you are not the Queen of France, right? The other fashion innovation Catherine of Medici would do is the perfumed gloves. Perfumes were among the favorites of Catherine of Medici and gloves were an essential accessory for Renaissance people. Perfumed gloves enabled people to always smell good and could act as a very thoughtful present or to poison your enemies in style. The main types of perfume used for these gloves were jasmine and orange blossom. Catherine would also democratize the use of lace. Well, democratize in brackets. Lace was before reserved to men's outfits. Catherine would use it to embellish her dresses alongside with pearls and embroideries soon copied by the other noble women from the court. A real Renaissance fashion trendsetter. Another item Catherine brought in her luggage from Italy was the corset. As the waist was the center of all attentions, corsets became soon the must-have item for women who desired to show the thinnest waist possible. The first corsets are said to have been done in iron. Not sure we can thank Catherine for that item, though. And last but not least, the riding pants for women and the side saddle. Catherine of Medici was not only smart, but she was also sportive. And she found the current way of riding a horse for women quite unpracticable. She started to wear pants to be more comfortable and developed the side saddle to make riding a horse a more pleasant experience for women. If the side saddle was adopted with no question, wearing pants was a big no-no for women. Already at the Renaissance time, pants or at least garments clothed at the genital level were exclusive domain for men, a domain they didn't want to share with women. And even the all-powerful Catherine of Medici, Queen of France, may be the most powerful woman of her time, if not of history, didn't manage to change the mentalities. This was a very short overview of the fashion innovations Catherine of Medici brought to the French court. She was also credited to have introduced the forks and the spread of the usage of fans, an image far from the cold, artless person we imagine she was. (music) 
As we could see, Catherine of Medici had an exceptional life during an exceptional period of time. And even if the moments she had to go through were difficult, the century during which she lived would completely change the society. The 16th century is a century of the Renaissance, the rebirth after the dark times of the Middle Ages. People were coming back to the learnings of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. The monopoly and influence of the church were decreasing. New discoveries were challenging the construction and the perceptions of the universe. Hearts were developing, thoughts were spreading faster. And in a sense, Catherine of Medici and her family and her role she played as Queen of France was a true Renaissance princess and a today pop icon whose life has inspired books and movies. French writer Honoré de Balzac wrote a book called On Catherine of Medici in 1830, and I highly recommend you to watch the French movie The Queen Margot, released in 1994 and based on Alexandre Dumas' novel The Queen Margot, which depicts the Saint Bartholomew's massacre. The movie is available on Netflix. And more recently, different series were released as the series reigned in October 2013, more focused on Mary, Queen of Scots, and The Serpent Queen, released in September 2022, based on the book Catherine of Medici, Renaissance Queen of France, written by Leonie Frida. And if you're interested in the Medici family, then the series Medici is for you. And it's not a surprise if Catherine of Medici, her personality and the fashion of her time became a source of inspiration for fashion designers too. Two striking examples come in mind. Chanel and Dior. The first example is Chanel's Metida Collection 2020-2021, which was showcased in the castle of Chenonceau also known as the Château des Dames, located in the Loire Valley in December 2020. This castle is intimately linked with the life of Catherine of Medici. It was one of her favorites. However, her husband, Henry II, offered it to his mistress, Diane de Poitiers, and Catherine would need to wait some years before being able to possess it. According to Virginie Viard, the current creative director of Chanel, the emblem of Catherine of Medici was a monogram composed of two interlaced C as the Chanel's logo. She added that it's not truly clear if Coco Chanel got inspired by this monogram to create her own logo, but it might be a possibility as she admired women from the Renaissance period. In this collection, we see the Middle Ages flirting with the Renaissance fashion. The iconic quaffs showcased almost or more emblematic of the Middle Ages silhouettes, which would accentuate the long and lean silhouettes of women of that time. What says its Renaissance, and more precisely Catherine of Medici, is the black color, a color she would wear after the death of her husband and as a show-off of her eternal love for him. Other elements of the Renaissance fashion can be spotted as the square-shouldered jackets, reminding the doublets worn by men, the maxi-skirts, whose forms can remind the fardingale Renaissance women would wear underneath their dresses to give them more volume, and especially the Spanish fardingale with the conical form. 
The sleeves of some jackets give the impression they are not tuned to the body of the outfit, reminding the detachable sleeves of the Renaissance. The glittering of some fabrics echoes the richness of fabrics used to create outfits during the 16th century, as we can notice on paintings, for example. And the ruff, this color accessorized worn by men and women, which frames the face. A rock and roll take on Renaissance fashion, I'm sure Catherine of Medici wouldn't have any, inch, any issue to wear to underline the black legends that surrounded her. And the second show inspired by Catherine of Medici and the Renaissance fashion is the last Dior collection presenting the, the, the September 2022 Paris Fashion Week. Maria Grazzacciuri dedicated this last collection to another emblematic Italian woman who reigned in the throne of France, Catherine of Medici. The show itself took place in the Jardin des Tuileries, where Catherine of Medici had a palace built for her in 1564. Maria Grazzacciuri said she considered Catherine of Medici as the epitome of the powerful woman. She added that Catherine of Medici incarnates the historical links between France and Italy. She always used clauses to embody power. And as testimonies from the Renaissance fashion, I spotted the forms of the dresses and skirts looking like the fartingales, and especially the Spanish version of it with its iconical form. The French fartingale, whose volume is more marked on the hips, was also present. The black color worn by Catherine of Medici after the death of her husband was a vibrant tribute to this exceptional character. Churi said about it that black was a power color for Catherine of Medici, a color thanks to which you could recognize her in the crowd. Black was also a costly dye and thus a symbol of status. Another item from Catherine of Medici was lace, which was also prominently shown in this Dior collection, and another tribute to Catherine of Medici, who was said to be a skilled needlewoman. She would have even invented a particular embroidery called the Punto Madama, which you can find in Curie's collection. We could also spot it references to the corsets and the, to the shoppings, these platform shoes Renaissance women were found of. True to her mission to empower women through fashion and hearts, Maria Grazia Churi managed to create a collection inspired by maybe one of the most powerful women in European history, mixed with modern and more comfortable items, all in order to celebrate and femininity and power dressing. An ode to the first feminist in history, he used fashion to impose herself in a world controlled by men. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of my Fashion Stories Box podcast dedicated to Catherine of Medici and her inputs into the Renaissance fashion. I also hope this episode will make you reconsider this exceptional woman who lived during an exceptional century. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, to connect with me on Instagram and Facebook to complete the podcast with some visuals. And if you like my podcast, feel free to leave a comment or a review. I would really appreciate it. I am Catherine, and this is my Fashion Stories Box podcast. 
a podcast about stories in fashion history. See you next time for a new fashion story box. Bye.